I feel like the chances of me having some sort of sound interruption are kind of high. I just realized I'm in the room with my cat's new automatic litter box. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've shut the cats out, so hopefully they won't come in. Wait, but if the cats have been locked out, the only incidents that would trigger your automatic <laughs> litter box is if you triggered it. If I use the litter box. <laughs> Don't put that in the cold open. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Today, Thursday, April 29th, is the 100th day of the Biden presidency. It's also the day after Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress. Because of technicalities, it wasn't considered a State of the Union address, but for all intents and purposes, that's what it was. He focused on his three big spending plans, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which has already become law, and then the more than $2 trillion American Jobs Plan and the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan, which he hopes to get through Congress. He framed them as an investment in the middle and working class and described the U.S. as in a global competition with China. Senator from South Carolina Tim Scott gave the Republican rebuttal. He criticized Democrats for keeping schools closed for too long during the pandemic and accused Democrats of stoking racial divisions in how they talk about racism in America. Today, we're going to take a look at Biden's first 100 days in office and review both what he, Biden, and Scott had to say in last night's speeches. Here with me to do that is senior politics writer Perry Bacon Jr. Hey, Perry. Good to see you, Galen. You too. Also here with us is 538 contributor and Marquette University political science professor Julia Azari. Her research focuses on the American presidency. Welcome, Julia. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I also want to say before we get going that Perry has some exciting news that is also a little bit sad for us here on the podcast Perry is taking a job as a columnist at the Washington Post. So first and foremost, congratulations, Perry. That is a great job and you deserve it. And I look forward to reading what you write there. We're all excited for you here at 538. And I also hope that you will come back and say hello to us from time to time on this podcast. I know it means that you won't be with us every week anymore. Um, and that's the sad part. But again, congratulations. And I want to say, Galen, I've just been a great part of my job you know, on this podcast. I think you've done, you do a really great job hosting and creating a great discussion. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. And for the listeners, I've enjoyed your emails to me sometimes are not the nicest, but most of the time they're <laughs> nice. And each time, almost every time I'm informed a little bit, challenged a little bit, we have a really great audience here, both on, on, on the, in the articles and on the podcast. And I'm grateful for the listeners and I hope that you all you know stay with 538 and hopefully follow me and what I'm doing as well. I'm sure everyone absolutely will. And Perry, you'll still be with us next week. So on Monday, we'll, I guess, send you off more in style. But I wanted to let listeners know that now that that information is out in the public. So let's begin with last night's speech. And we can talk about Biden's first 100 days more broadly in a minute. But first of all, Perry, what was Biden's goal in his address to Congress last night? It seems to me that he spent the first half, first 40 minutes, talking about the economy, talking about COVID. And it seems to me that was sort of laying out, that's the time when I assume his staff, his political advisors, assume people are watching the most. And there was a little, there was a start about COVID, then there was a lot about kind of like, here's what I've done to help people get jobs through the, through the initial um, stimulus package, earn more money. 
pass those checks, so on. There's a big focus on the, on the economy from the stimulus bill, and then there's a big focus on the economy in terms of the infrastructure bill. So it tells me he's kind of like saying, here's what I've done to help you in the sort of most practical ways possible, COVID, the economy, and here's what I'm going to do. And I thought that was the most important part of the speech. Then after that, I thought he also addressed racial issues, immigration, foreign policy, voting rights. But I think he the first half was sort of where he's focused, I think, and the second half was kind of ticking out things he sort of had to address in a State of the Union-style speech. Yeah. Julia, how did you process what Biden was trying to accomplish with his speech to Congress? And maybe do these speeches matter all that much as well? Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about this and thinking a lot about the ways in which presidents are limited in how much they can persuade members of Congress and kind of change the political situation. Are there ways in which Biden can meaningfully alter the political incentives of members of Congress? And the answer to that is mostly no. It's possible given the given the kind of razor's edge margins of everything in Congress in American politics right now, that a kind of slight marginal change might really make a difference. And so... You know, if we're thinking about who is the audience for this speech, and I think that was a lurking idea in a lot of our comments on the live blog last night, there was a, a strong perception that this is Biden kind of trying to trying to distance himself from more divisive frameworks and more divisive issues and instead kind of seem very middle of the road and, and reasonable and policy focused and yet at the same time propose some, some pretty significant policies. And, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal has already, you know, written an editorial about the, the expense of the policies and also the, the nature of them and the ideas behind them. So I think that if we're thinking about who the audience was, I think it's partly kind of people on the fence, people in the middle, moderate Democrats, mansion, cinema, their constituents, um, middle of the road Democrats in, in the House, um, also the press. And I think some of what, what Biden probably aimed to do was to keep the focus on these core issues. And the economy and COVID in particular are, are issues where Biden has an advantage and where, you know, there are issue areas where Democrats typically have an advantage. Um, and to kind of keep the debate on those terms nationally and to keep this sort of sense that seems to have emerged in the mainstream press and is somewhat evident in public opinion that Biden, is, this is an administration that's policy focused, competent, moving forward on bread and butter priority issues. And so I think that was, I think that was the goal. And based on what I'm seeing in this sort of mainstream legacy media, it seems like it was, it was fairly successful. Yeah. Perry, what do you make of that strategy? Is he right that putting, well, the pandemic first and then the economy front and center and pushing things like guns legislation or policing or climate change, uh, voting laws, et cetera, to kind of the back part of the speech to the point where a lot of those issues kind of got one or two lines and then quickly moved to the next? Is he right in a electoral sense I'm not really sure. I guess I, 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 just, I just think people are, part, are sorted in a very partisan way. There are, there are voters in the middle, but I don't think those voters in the middle are able to ignore the other cultural issues that happen in the country. Like the Georgia voting law was a huge thing and it happened in the world that people are going to have their opinions on no matter whether Biden spoke about it for one sentence or 15 sentences. So I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that this talk about jobs, avoid culture, 
actually is brilliant strategy because I think the culture fight is happening in America and voters are going to notice it even if it doesn't happen in Biden's speeches. So I don't, I'm not really convinced of that. I think in terms of like dealing with the country's problems in ways, in bills that can pass, because of reconciliation, Biden can pass his economic policies. He can't pass gun control bills, voting rights bills, etc. Well, filibuster. So in some ways, Focusing on, like Julie mentioned, Mansion and Cinema of the Audience, to some extent, bills that can pass is what he was talking about. I think that that makes sense. He he should get try to get some things done, and the back half of the speech was mostly things he actually can't get done, and foreign policy, which I would say voters probably don't care about. So let's drill it down on that for a second. In the category of things that he could potentially get done are the remaining $4 trillion that have, are divided up into two separate plans. One, the American Jobs Plan, which is infrastructure with some other social programs, and then the American Families Plan, which is childcare, pre-K, um, you know, extending benefits to parents with children, et cetera, community college, things like that. That's, you know, $6 trillion. The $2 trillion for the American Rescue Plan has already gotten through. This remaining $4 trillion and everything that is associated with it, what's the likelihood that uh, it happens? It comes down to the constituencies and constituency pressure on the the swing votes in Congress and then the kind of Senate parliamentarians rules about what can be done through reconciliation. Because getting to that, that filibuster threshold seems pretty unlikely. These seem like the best bet for kind of shaping constituency expectations. One of the things that I keep thinking about is the way in which we've had a, a number of successive presidents and, and other politicians who have run in kind of an anti-system way and like the system the system doesn't work for you and like that's a really appealing message to people but no one has been able to deliver on that change and this really goes back to the Obama administration but it's true of the Trump administration too and i wonder to what extent particularly if we're thinking about kind of like the more moderate and old school Republican members of Congress, to what extent some of their constituents may start putting pressure on them to produce, to produce results on these kinds of policies that affect people's lives. And the the degree to which the sort of anger politics is is not going to cut it anymore. That may be wishful thinking on my part, but I wonder when people might start shifting their their thinking and and see an opportunity to to demand getting something from politics and the degree to which that might not totally cross party lines but be able to shift coalitions a little bit. Jaylen, your question was like, how, what what bill might pass? My sense is a four trillion dollar proposal. Mansion. My guess is at the end of the day we have something like a two trillion dollar bill passed with only Democratic votes because Mansion is wary of a big spending bill and so on. That's my impression, and I guess that leads me to this point, which is like I, I think I suspect Julie will disagree because I you know she writes about the the agenda setting power of the presidency, but. I would have probably learned more if Joe Manchin had given a 90-minute speech about what he's for than what Joe, Joe Biden said things I basically already knew he was for that are up to Congress. If, if Kristen Sinema, uh, Joe Manchin, and maybe the House moderates had given three, you know, some version of like 80 minutes of speeches, I would have probably learned more about what's going to happen this year. I mean, a little bit. I, I need to think a little bit about this, and I worry that I worry that I will try to move this into a sort of political science weeds about the filibuster pivot and whatever. But like, 
there's a reason they didn't, right? There's a reason they didn't. They don't have that platform. And they haven't, to the extent that now the new media environment provides everybody with a little bit of a platform, they have sort of only modestly chosen to use it. And they normally use it, I would say both of these people normally use it to signal their kind of maverickiness in different ways. And maverickiness has a quality all its own. And so the job for Biden, I think, is to frame issues in such a way that either those two legislators can get on board despite their maverickiness, right? I'm just going to keep using this terrible word that I think the therapist feels like the 2008 election Um, all over again. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I I've been in the Sarah Palin headspace for totally other reasons. So anyway, the um, I think you know either it's like this is so important. This is this is such a priority, and you know people want childcare. People want these sorts of supports, or it's they can somehow fold it in. But that is sort of Biden's rhetorical task, and it's not to say that Biden is. You know, is, is especially well suited to this kind of rhetoric or anything like that. But it's just like that is typically how these things go. And and that is the president's role is setting that agenda. There's a reason we didn't hear from those two. And if they had had that opportunity, I don't think they would have laid it out that way. That's just not that's not their political project. So you're basically saying that Biden's task as president is to paint any dissenters within his own party into a corner such that they feel like there's so much pressure to pass his agenda that to do anything else would be like politically unfeasible and the American public would be outraged. Or or at the very least that voting to pass his agenda is better than the alternative. That that would be the it's preferable to the status quo. So I want to flip this a little bit. We're talking about the politicians here who may be deciding whether or not Biden's agenda passes. But what about the public? Because in reading some of the commentary on last night's speech, it was described as something of a paradigm shift. You know, Reaganomics is dead. Big government spending is back. Has really the view of the American public changed on these things that big spending on social programs are popular, period? So... I was never really convinced that despite we had sort of three decades of the public doesn't support spending and we should endeavor to something, it's not really clear to me the public ever, that's why we had so many deficits. The public likes the sort of, used to like the sort of rhetoric of small government, but then if you try to cut anything real, they would push back. You know, Bill Clinton was sort of famous for the era of big government is over, but attacking New Gingrich for trying to cut anything. So I think I was, I'm ne- I've never really been sure that the public was really small government in sort of re- when the, when it, when we came down to like let's cut some things, so in that sense, I don't think it's been that hard to move the and and now what we've seen is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party moved away from that. Trump basically proved in a lot of ways the Republican Party did not care about spending deficits, etc. You know, and and then the Democratic Party was already sort of open to that anyway, because most Democrats were really not. The Democratic Party was focused on sort of fiscal conservatism for electoral purposes, and then sort of once the Republicans became big spinners, it much easier. They, like the sort of Warren, like if you heard Biden's first forty-five minutes, there were a lot of lines that Warren and Sanders could have given word for word because that came from that sort of economic populist left of the party, which I think is moving the public left because the public was very open to moving left in the first place. So I don't think, I I guess I read those things being like, Biden said trickle-down economics is dead. I don't think the average member of the public was like, oh my gosh, he's a super liberal. I mean, it's part because he's old and white, but partly because I don't think that the country ever really had 
a strong ideological sense of small government on economic issues. Yeah, I mean, the the political science uh, phrase for what Perry's describing is that the American public on balance is, is operationally liberal and symbolically conservative. If you ask them if they like big government, they'll say no. Um, if you ask them if they like various programs, they will say yes. That research goes back to the 60s. I mean, it seems to me like something has shifted, but also that the public has long um, kind of had this operational liberalism. If you think about candidates who win, right, you have Reagan wins in the 80s. No one knows why. Anyone who says they know why is lying. Um, it was a feeling. There, it could have been, um, right, about the small government stuff, but it could have been a bunch of other things. And then, you know, Bill Clinton wins. And so that becomes the conventional wisdom is these are the messages that win. But as, as Perry points out, Trump and Biden send us in a different direction. So if we take those facts, we can just say, like, these are the messages that these are the messages that win. I think that What's different about this is actually the rhetoric coming out of, in this case, the president trying to identify this kind of proper philosophical role for government as providing things and helping people and having possibility. And that's really fallen, that had really fallen off the agenda, not just with Republicans and not just with Bill Clinton, but to some degree with Obama as well. It was definitely the era of big government is back. He didn't say the era of big government is back, as no one should say that. But he's definitely saying the era of the government and the government spending is here. He didn't, and I think that was clear. And he was definitely a. If we could sort of grade this speech compared to Obama's 2009 address, it was definitely notably more liberal on economic issues, like dramatically more liberal in a certain way. And I think that is a change. I'm not sure that's the public, though. I think that's more the party has, the internal party has changed. Like we talk about the, the AOC Sanders wing can't win elections. It is, I would argue, pretty clearly winning, pushing the party. Have you noticed Biden's line last night where he said, I don't want to get rid of billionaires, but I want to tax them as much as possible. Or I want to tax them, make sure they pay their fair share. Like if you're AOC, I don't think she's crying in her beer. Like she, he attacked the AOC idea that, you know, AOC says we shouldn't have billionaires. He was criticizing the idea of that AOC had, but he was sort of acknowledging, oh, that's a great framing for me to sort of critique while pushing for higher taxes than Obama would have on billionaires. It's like, you know, the left and the center left are sort of playing, I think, pretty smartly where the left says things that are, that, you know, that are way out there. And then Biden can say 20 percent different than that and it's moderate and i think they're actually doing this day dance pretty smartly yeah that's my read too can i say one more thing about that 100 percent. i think this is the the other difference with the way that biden talks about this stuff compared with the way that clinton and obama did is he talks about it as having promise and like it can work and this was where democrats had really adopted republican talking points was this idea that well when government does it it doesn't work and that's like that's actually a really subtle but fundamental shift. Right. I mean, that was part of Obamacare, right, was that this is giving a platform for private insurance companies to, you know, provide care that they're better at providing than the government would be. Right. So one question I have here, and this is probably unanswerable, but I'm curious to hear how both of you are thinking about this. Is Trump or is Sanders Warren more responsible for this shift that we're seeing in American politics? Is it more important that the opposition is no longer promoting small government rhetorically, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it more important that there is a growing part of the Democratic Party on the left that is economically populist? 
I think the combined answer is the Democrats are no longer interested really in getting a lot of Republican votes. They don't, they don't really respect Republican rhetoric. Like Obama did a real effort to try to get Dem Republicans on board with Obamacare. Biden is pretending for politeness reasons and for polling reasons and so on, but they're not really trying to get Republicans on board. And they, on some level, they don't, his staff has some disdain for that approach because they don't believe the Republicans are serious governing partners. So in that sense, it is both the Republican Party has, is not as fiscally conservative. The Democratic Party is to the left on economics, but also that there's, there's less effort to meet in the middle on really anything. So the Democratic Party can become more left and they're not trying to hit the Republican Party at all. So I think those three things, and I do think the pandemic and what yeah. you saw also affected that. I would also say like on the economic issues, I think that is driven by the change in the parties. I think on the, I guess on the racial issues, I would say that is also happening where the, where I think Trump moved the Democratic Party left on racial issues, but so did the Black Lives Matter, for example. So I think that these, these intersect at the, at the point of social movements and that the Warren Sanders candidacies were possible because there was already a growing social movement around economic inequality. And those movements became like I had some of the same justifications and some of the same people that became then the basis for support for particularly for Sanders candidacy in 2016 that kind of I think took people by surprise. Those movements I think grew and kind of shifted in focus speaking to some of the the Black Lives Matter movement um, issues as well as the economic inequality movement and various social movements that emerged under the the Trump presidency. So I think that's where they meet. But where I would describe their relative causal roles is I don't think Biden moves left without this sort of party building on the left. And again, I think that Warren and Sanders deserve some some credit for it, but also that they their candidacies were the product of social forces that had already organized. The other part, though, is I think that's a, really about diagnosing the problem and about changing the language. The leeway that Biden gets on policy, and people have frequently attributed this to him being an older white man. I don't want to discount that, but I think that that also is very limiting. That framework is very limiting. I think he gets a lot of leeway from following the Trump administration. This is an administration that was, was unpopular, even when things were good, then 2020 was just sort of epically bad year in a way that was acutely experienced by a lot of people. Um, and then he became the first president to lose re-election in 30 years. So this is or almost 30 years. So this is a, this is a moment where I think Biden just has a lot of leeway to do different policies. Um, and that's a really that's a critical element. So I think they have different they play different causal roles in creating this opportunity for for the Biden uh, presidency to move left. Interesting. Yeah, that was well put. I love hearing you guys talk through this stuff. I want to move on and talk a little bit about Tim Scott's rebuttal and also maybe a little bit more about the first 100 days. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. 
effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We mentioned that Joe Biden kept some of perhaps the more controversial issues on his agenda, like policing, gun control, racism, voting laws for the end of his speech and did not give them as much emphasis as the economy and COVID. When Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, gave his rebuttal, he put some of those issues front and center and spent, you know, at least as a proportion of his speech, more time talking about race in America than Joe Biden did. So what was his goal or strategy in, you know, framing his speech that way? I mean, I think the reason he's picked for that role, the reason he has part of his promise in the party, this is hard, this is a little complicated to talk about, but his part of his role is to be a black person who rejects the sort of democratic and maybe media narrative about the Republican Party in the country on some level. So it's like, I don't know if he they told him talk about race a lot or he already sort of internalized that that's kind of what he does. And that's part of his political project. It wasn't unlike his speech to the RNC at the, at the convention, which I thought was very good last year. I thought this speech similarly. So we've had a bunch of racialized discussions, particularly about that Georgia law. And so I think the Georgia law, what happened with George Floyd. I just think there's been a lot of, but I think generally this idea, Donald Trump's presidency, this idea that the Republican Party has a racist element and maybe a racist core is a huge problem for the party. And on some level, Tim Scott, of, of course he should address it. Of course he had to address it. And of course they were smart to have him address it. I don't know that that means he's going to win in 2024, but I think he was a very natural selection. And in some ways, like Julie was hinting at, Biden's agenda on the economy, his actual policies are fairly popular. They're going to be hard to oppose. Um, in a, but I, I think the Republicans are going to oppose them, but they're fairly popular. This question about, like, if you look at the polling on Black Lives Matter approval, that gets closer closer to sort of 48, 44. That gets close to sort of where the country is divided anyway. So I think it's natural that Tim Scott is a sort of a natural opponent of the ethos of Black Lives Matter. And he's a good one in that he's not white and that he's black, but while opposing that ethos. This is interesting to me. I've been really thinking about this and about kind of where where we are in terms of party politics and race and policy and and kind of how how all three of those different topics have somewhat different trajectory uh, that don't always line up. I'm not sure what to make of 
Tim Scott's speech in the context of what we saw at the RNC over the summer, which was essentially the Republican Party trying to position itself as the racially liberal party. Right. It was essentially them really, you know, there's one night with really foregrounded their criminal justice reform. They had a lot of speakers of color. And so this is one kind of logic of how how the parties could position themselves. And it you could kind of see the logic of this if you combine it with the DNC, where they highlighted a lot of Republican speakers. And it was like, oh, both parties are trying to sort of show that they're not extreme and meet in the middle. But it's not obvious to me that that is the country that we have or why that would be strategic. That's the part that I find confusing, because I think we're at a place that we've we've been at before. I think we're at a place that's sort of similar to where we were in the kind of mid-60s, where on the one hand, it is not tenable, the racial status quo is not tenable, and on the other hand, nobody likes the solutions that are on the table. And those solutions almost immediately produce a, a backlash from the white electorate. And that, I mean, this is a really unfortunate diagnosis and possibly the result of spending too much time reading about this period lately. But that's sort of where I see us. That doesn't map on to this story of what the Republican Party is trying to do at all. It is not obvious to me. This is weird. This is probably the most I've ever disagreed with Perry. But it is not obvious to me that it is a problem for the Republican Party its sort of lack of appeal with voters of color or its lack of appeal with whites for whom racial liberalism is important. It's not obvious to me that that is actually a problem. The Republican Party does very well where it does well. And the map is is kind of drawn to give them an advantage based on that. I mean, the map of the country from, you know, the, the broader Senate map, Electoral College map, right? Those advantages. And it, it seems like those in candidates who make those types of appeals do quite well. I don't know that Tim Scott is out there to um, appeal to moderates or to make the Republican Party seem more moderate on this issue. My read is a lot darker and more cynical, um, which is that this is a way of trying to shift the terrain back onto race. And that when Democrats have to take the defensive on race, that pushes Democrats into a corner in which they have to not only talk about systemic problems, they have to figure out what their relationship is to activists who use more dramatic language that castigates the system. Um, That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, And they have to talk about solutions, right? So then it becomes, well, if this is your problem, then you, party that controls both chambers of Congress and the White House, what are you doing about it? And many of those solutions are are fraught and unpopular, and they divide the Democratic Party internally, right? The Democratic Party, I think, is unified in that it wants to move left on race somehow, but they're very divided on what should be the role of of the police, what should be the role of ICE, you know, those. And so I think it's, I think it's a, it's a fracturing strategy, and it's, it's a wedge issue strategy. And this is just, I mean, I also want to say about that rebuttal, rebuttals are a hard genre. We have seen them go south, both parties, all different types of politicians, all different attempts to master the medium. Scott did a good job. I think he he avoided many of the critical pitfalls. His speech was very logical, and which is not always the case with these things, and, and very clear. And I think it's unfortunate that I have this read that that was used as being used as a prop to drive a wedge through the other party. But this is my my really deeply cynical read on that. So I, I guess I see him as very clearly the ambassador to sort of white Georgia voter moderates who don't want to 
vote for uh, Donald Trump if he's labeled racist, but who want to vote who are Republican and want. I see him very clearly as speaking to that person. I can imagine him being picked as vice president and being sent to sort of uh, signal in a lot of ways to sort of people who maybe voted for uh, Romney but not Trump that the Republican Party is not racist. Here I am. That's maybe that's that's his entire role to me. I don't know. Yeah. So maybe we really do disagree here. Listening to the two of you, it seems like the two ideas can coexist to some extent in that if you drive a wedge through the Democratic Party and force the party to talk about race in ways that make some of its voters feel uncomfortable, while also portraying the Republican Party as more moderate on these things and open to people of color and voters of color, etc., you've created like a feedback loop that would ultimately help the Republican Party electorally and hurt the Democratic Party, right? Okay, fair enough. That, that, that seems right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess I'm more skeptical of who this who this romney clinton voter is or a romney biden voter is there are not many of them but i think the data suggests there's a small number but i don't but i I, how they vote i guess i guess i i will admit i i probably know them more through the bulwark and the sort of college educated part of them and they're probably are those people are overrepresented in the media i would concede but i I think that sort of that person i think is more open to a tim scott but maybe not maybe but that that may be a small number of people not worth discussing that's sort of my view and that most of them vote, not the bulwark people, but most of the people like that in the electorate voted for Trump anyway. I mean, sure. I mean, the overwhelming majority did, in fact. So, that, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's complicated, right? Because we did see during the 2016 election and 2018 midterms that there were these places in suburban Atlanta, suburban Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Orange County, just make really dramatic shifts. Parts of Utah make really dramatic shifts that we at 538 crunched the numbers to figure out where Democrats picked up more ground in 2018, was it in, you know, Obama Trump districts or Romney Clinton slash Romney third party districts? And it was that latter district, the district that was had higher levels of education, was in suburban areas around large metro areas. And it seems like for Democrats to, you know, maintain a majority in the House, so on, those districts are quite important. Yeah, that's my basic take. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I have to sit down and read all the districts. Biden, but I, that's my basic take is there is a small number of Romney Biden voters. And this and if I was Republicans, I would use Tim Scott or somebody like that to appeal to them. Yeah, that's my but I can I understand what Julia is saying, too. I, I guess I to come back to Biden on race briefly. I didn't hear Biden's speeches avoiding race. I guess I know one of my co- some of my colleagues uh, on the live blog did. I, I like it seemed very consistent of what he's been doing, which is that he leads with sort of economic populism. But he did not, you know, he talked about he he gave a speech after the George after the Chauvin trial. I mean, it's not like he has he's talked about racial equity a lot. Biden has talked about race in in, in this speech too way more than Barack Obama did. So I'm not sure that I would say that in the context of how much maybe media public movement discourse there is about racial issues yes biden maybe is not talking about racialism as much as the sort of median 
maybe the median Democrat with a Twitter account. I even think the median Democrat, I don't think he's like, I didn't leave that speech to think he's ignoring black voters. My guess is James Clyburn was like, great, you gave a speech about economic issues that was full of left-wing stuff that would it would probably disproportionately help black people. You talked about voting rights, which we can't pass anyway. You talked about gun rights, which we can't, which gun control, which we, can't, we can't pass anyway. You hit George Floyd specifically. You gave a speech about this two weeks ago. You've picked black women for judgeships. You picked Kamala Harris and she's standing there. I can't imagine a Clyburn, that, that's sort of Biden's real base is like Clyburn's, you know, aged black folks not BLM leaders. And I feel like he sort of has always been very good at hitting the marks to that group. And I think that speech with his last night's speech seemed perfectly pitched for that group. I had a very similar read, which was exactly that Biden has spoken a lot about race and about systemic racism in a way that really defies a lot of patterns in in the presidency that we've seen so far. I think this and is also partly a genre issue. I think that there were people who sort of expected, like, maybe Biden would use his State of the Union to to speak in a more systemic way about big principle ideas, the way presidents do sometimes use a primetime address. And I'm just calling this thing a State of the Union because this whole situation is friggin' ridiculous. Um, the um, About calling it not a State of the Union. But the State of the Union is, is a policy laundry list. And it generally doesn't go into the kind of deep systemic issues or a kind of broader explanation of the principles of the administration or diagnosis of the problems of the country. It's sort of like agenda item, agenda item, agenda item. And Biden could have broken with that form, but he didn't. And that makes sense to me. I think in some ways, I've been thinking a lot. I wrote this piece when Trump was president about Trump being a 19th century president. I keep thinking about Biden as a 20th century president. And I think one of the 20th century playbook items that he's taken is building on the success of the way policy success sort of builds on itself, right? So like you pursue the things you can pursue. You look like you can read the room. You look like you know what you're doing. The president probably gets way more credit than he deserves when things like this go well in the legislative arena. And then you build up the capital so that later in the administration you can take on these systemic issues. This is a very 20th century model. It's actually very, it's very FDR model in terms of, of policy immediacy and then moving out to the more structural changes that you might make as you build political capital. A more recent model and a more 21st century model is to assume that you have political capital for 100 days, you're going to do everything, and then it's just going to be playing the defensive as the midterm approaches. So that actually, I mean, it actually makes sense to me that, that Biden might give this a try. Why not? It may not work. It may not result in these structural changes, um, but trying to to deal with them in February during a pandemic didn't make any sense either. So I think that's that's a bunch of what we saw. So I did not really see the speech as him ignoring race. And as Perry said, I think it's important to think about the difference between BLM leaders, social movement leaders who play a very specific role in pushing against the status quo and rank and file African-American voters who have and this is another kind of long-standing feature, who have, like most voters in the electorate, been primarily concerned with the economy and their economic opportunities. And so it makes sense also to emphasize those priorities. The data shows that Black people do care a lot about 
police justice, the idea that the police treat black people poorly. But what we've seen is all Democrats care about that now. So talking about race is not like a subset issue in a certain... When you get into reparations, then white Democrats don't support them and black There are issues where there's differences. But in general, by the Democratic Party has moved to a place where racial issues are more prominent and but that's a shared view among all in the party so it's not like like he gave a sort of he did the whole immigrants ish immigrants he did climate change immigration gun policy and sort of racial issues in a list and if you think about that that was sort of a base checkoff in a certain way but that tells you the bases like climate people and guns are sort of white left you know racial issues are black his immigration is not all Latinos but he's sort of, but I think in some ways that that checklist is no longer just checking for each group the whole coalition agrees on all those things essentially Interesting. I want to, before we wrap up here, reflect a bit on Biden's first 100 days, which we've done a lot of here, but maybe a little more specifically. And Julia, I think you triggered one of our buzzwords uh, when you mentioned FDR. I think obviously that's kind of the comparisons that Biden would like people to make. uh, And I'm curious to hear whether you all think that's fair. But during his first 100 days, kind of what did we learn about him as a president. You kind of set us up nicely. What else did we learn besides that he wants to be FDR? I mean, every president in some way it lives in the shadow of, of FDR um, and very few of them make it there. And I think very few of them would actually want to in the sense that FDR's presidency was actually very, was very tumultuous and the country was, you know, in, in shambles in a lot of ways. I think of the multiple intersecting crises make make Biden's a more logical comparison to FDR in that regard. But I, I don't mean to set that up. I, I don't mean to do the sort of, you know, any sort of hagiography about Biden versus FDR, either of them. But what I do, what I did want to emphasize there was a sort of progression from immediate issues to structural issues that I think Biden is sort of building on. One of the things I think we learned about Biden is actually something we learned about the presidency, which is that experience matters. And I am really struck by how uneventful this administration has been. And it's not just that the comparison point is Trump, although that is a very dramatic one, but also Obama and also Bill Clinton. I mean, I sort of remember going through like seemingly endless attorney generals for for Clinton and this sort of seeming, you know, the appointment process and the White House staffing process and all of this was so dramatic for some of these less experienced presidents. It's sort of like, you know, they, they were kind of flummoxed by by these challenges and also by the reality of what Congress was. Biden, if he's been surprised by any of that, he's hidden it very well. And his cabinet has clearly been when been very well vetted and well received and confirmed. And I think these are things that we maybe don't always think about, but do illustrate the way in which experience matters. And that's that is a contrast between Biden and not just Trump, but virtually every president that's come before him for 40 years. So my big three takeaways in the first 100 days is, first of all, I thought it was such an important moment when that press conference happened and none of the reporters asked the question about COVID. It was like, oh, you know, Biden fixed COVID. It was the unsubtle, like, you know, implication there. They could not come up with gotcha questions or any questions, really, because he had calmed the country down. I'm not saying that... 
he created the vaccine process started before him that was it was already going that's it i don't i think it's easy to imagine this would not have gone as well with donald trump in charge and i think biden took over on this really important issue that this is by far the most important thing that's happened not only in this 100 days i would argue in many presidencies 100 days to have so many people get vaccines and whether biden admitted should get a lot of credit some credit this happened while he was president and he he and Ron Klain and the staff were very focused on it. The first few months was like COVID, COVID, COVID. First few weeks was COVID. And that was important. Is like Biden takes governing seriously. And I'm sure they'll make some mistakes doing it. The border stuff has not been handled as well. But Biden takes governing seriously in a way that Trump never did. And I would argue that he, in some ways his staff is thinking about these governing things more than Obama's did. Like the website for Obamacare was a terrible rollout. And it seems to me that Biden's staff has really thought we have to be good at implementation if we're going to say we want to have more government involved. That's the most important thing of the first 100 days. The second thing was important is that when he was talking during the campaign about bipartisanship and the, and the fever breaking I was like, he was vice president. How did he miss the Obama years? I was covering it. What is he talking about? Is he insane? Okay, so and, and, and it's become clear he was basically lying. You know, so that's like he was not dumb. He was basically lying, and so they have they they play bipartisanship, but it's all for play. And I was and I I thought maybe I misunderstood something about the country, but I don't. They were that was all for play. That was useful to know. And then the third part is. They are governing in a, in a decidedly liberal way and not just, we mentioned race where he talks about race a lot. We mentioned the economy, which talked about way. I, if you had asked me about Afghanistan, I would have said, oh, you know, Biden's part of the blob. He's a foreign policy person. He'll make up some reason why we can't get, get, get out of Afghanistan. He'll keep some small number there. It'll seem radical if he withdraws all the troops. He did it like uh, and I, uh, that was a bold move. There wasn't like, you know, there weren't that many troops there in the first, but that was a bold move. And on foreign policy even and part of what's happening even in terms of um, immigration is he's trying to have a less harsh immigration policy, not only from Trump, but really from Clinton and early stage Obama's too. And that's why you're seeing like they're trying to be sort of more forgiving at the border. It's a foreign policy issue of sorts. And so I think even the foreign policy left has kind of got more traction than I expected. And in general, Biden is way more left on a lot of dimensions than I expected. So you've laid out a lot of ways in which Biden has been clearly to the left of a lot of his predecessors. If I recall correctly, really the only time he tried to break with party orthodoxy in a high-profile way was on refugee caps and originally proposing that we stick with the refugee caps that were proposed by Trump for 2021. There was a backlash within the party, and it seems like his administration is now reconsidering and will announce new numbers later. Is it the case that, like, he's kind of in a corner, like he can't actually break with party orthodoxy because there will be such a big backlash? Or will people stick with him even if he does kind of cross party lines sometimes? I mean, it seems like the only time he's really actually tried to cross party lines, he immediately got a lot of pushback. I think immigration really illustrates polarization in a way and the impact of the Trump presidency in that every issue is now salient. That's an exaggeration, but I think it's, it's not far off. Immigration has typically not been a top-line national issue. It played a huge role in the 2016 presidential campaign in a way that's very unique in, in modern history. 
And it's typically divided both parties internally, and so it hasn't been something anybody really wants to wants to champion. Um, Bush took it on fairly late in his in his presidency and wasn't successful. And I think what what you're seeing with Biden is a couple things. One is that you can't now you can't cross these immigration activists, and that they became very strong during the the Trump presidency, and these issues and their p- perspective on these issues became very salient with the Democratic electorate. And the idea that human rights should drive our immigration policy became a guiding principle. That's a principle that's actually really different from how the Democrats have talked about this issue in their, for example, in their platform in the past. They usually framed immigration as we have to secure the border, but also the immigrants make the country better and they improve, they improve the economy. And the, the sort of foregrounding of human rights is a little bit distinct and a little bit new. And I think that that puts Biden in a really challenging position because it's not just about, it's not just about challenging party orthodoxy. That's not how I would put it. It's that Biden is in a position where he may need to try and lay out what is, what is a logic of democratic policy on immigration. And during the Trump years, this was easy. It's not Trump. And during the Obama and Clinton years, they were able to sort of keep it lower salience. Biden's not going to be able to do that. So they're going to need to have an idea about sort of what are the guiding principles that guide our immigration policy that skirts both the sort of open borders accusations and also the challenges about human rights and that that you know kind of acknowledges the priorities of activists who are rooted in in these human rights concerns and that is not an easy task to come up with a coherent philosophy of where the party stands on immigration that responds to where the Republican Party has has taken its stance. So I think this is I think this is a really complicated issue, but I think that it does also generalize out to your broader question, can Biden can Biden cross party orthodoxy, or more importantly, party activists. And I think it's it's much harder to do so when nearly every issue has a sort of top line salience and the electorate is already sorted on it. I think that Biden is not doing everything the left wants. And that I would say he's not cutting defense spending. He's not fighting the filibuster. Like he's not like the left wants a fourth right fight on the filibuster. He's kind of dancing. They want him to, you know, sort of call Joe Manchin every day and say, get it done already. And I think he's being much more careful on this. He's not doing everything the left wants. Is he doing anything the Republicans want? I, I think you're likely, my prediction is on this criminal justice George Floyd Act. I do think he may end up dropping some parts that the kind of uh, more left on CJ reform people want in order to get the Republicans to vote for it. I think there might be that issue where the real left's demands on policing are never going to happen. So in that kind of bill, I can imagine there's a world where he reaches the Republicans, drops some things, and so on. So I don't think, I think the question of like, does he do everything the left wants is no. Does he cross party orthodoxy? Biden is party orthodoxy. So it's like hard for me to sort of like, you know, get into that too much. Does he join the Republicans on some things? I think he will. I think it, I think it'll be on issues that we can't think. I think there'll be on, I think there are some low salience issues in the world. I can't think of any like, you know, offhand here, but I think there are probably issues where there is probably, I guess there was a hate crimes bill. I'm not saying hate crimes are low salience, but there was a hate crimes legislation, anti-Asian hate crimes legislation that was passed. So I think there's bipartisanship that's possible. I don't see him doing any Bill Clinton style bills where half the Democratic caucus votes against it. No, I don't think if that's the question, then no. The party is stronger and I don't think 
triangulating can work because there's no center of the electorate to I don't think the electorate is has a lot of centrist swing voters like that you can triangulate with and to the way Bill Clinton I think Biden needs to have the Democratic base with him in 2022 so I think there's a lot of incentive not to annoy them yeah, that was going to be my final question here wrapping up is, you know, of course, we're 538. We got to talk about approval ratings. And as we record this podcast, Biden has 54% approve, 42% disapprove. That is well above Trump. That's almost the reverse of where Trump was, but also oh, relative to historical presidents who are living through very different political times with lower levels of polarization, etc. And so we at 538 and other places in the media have had this kind of debate of why is this? Is it just not possible for a president to have a true honeymoon period anymore where they're getting two thirds support from the country? And I was going to ask, like, is there a scenario in which that could happen? And is just like fully crossing the Democrats and, you know, throwing the Republicans a bone on something, a situation that could actually like gain him approval amongst Republicans while not losing much amongst Democrats? You know, we're living through a pandemic right now, so it's maybe a little bit hard to think of some rally around the flag, big national event that could shake things up. But maybe is this just what we should expect from the Biden presidency? Or is there any reason to think that this this kind of where we are in terms of presidential approval could change? The the prevailing wisdom in political science right now is that people are starting to actually cast doubt even on these rallying effects. But that was the first thing that came to mind is it, it wouldn't be something Biden would do at all. It would be a shift in the political environment where there's a rallying effect because something terrible happened. That seems to be the that seems to be how these things happen. I mean, Obama and Trump's ratings were just remarkably flat. And when they did change, it was to decline. So I think that's, you know, I, I think that's sort of the situation we're in. Yeah, I mean, the question would be, okay, so the Republicans have a Biden's proposing $4 trillion in this infrastructure bill overall. The Republicans have, I think, a $600 billion proposal. If Biden said, I endorse that tomorrow, what do you think would happen? I think it would become three hundred billion, you know, and 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 then there would be a rush for the Republicans to find something wrong with the six hundred billion, and I'm not sure it would be signed. Let's, but uh, let's say, but I think there's a potential that maybe it's signed. Let's let's say it's signed. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans go to the event and so on. Do I think that takes Biden or like two things? I think that takes Biden beyond. Maybe he gets to 60 at that point. I think there's a core 30 that's going nowhere near him. But I think that's the scenario you have to imagine is do will would the Republicans allow on a high any issue that had high salience? Would the Republicans sign on to a bipartisan bill? I'm skeptical, but we can just forget about the left for a second. Would the Republicans allow that to happen? I'm skeptical. Let's say it does. I don't know if you'd have to if you're Biden, you have to think. Is am I gonna if I get ten points that's worth doing? If I get three points and I piss off all the left, I don't know if that's worth it or not. And in some ways, maybe my approval rating goes down among Democrats as it goes up among Republicans. So that's the question: is I don't know how sorted we are, and I don't. I'd love to see a test of this because I think I'm I'm interested. I'd be interested to know because I actually think I don't genuinely know. Yeah, I mean the parties have in some ways been too sorted to really even try it. Yes. But a good example, let me, sorry. I don't think people, Trump signed a criminal justice reform bill, I think, in 2019. I remember 
talking to people about this and they didn't know it existed. And so one problem is when an issue becomes bipartisan, I almost worry that the media doesn't cover it as much because it's not a conflict. And therefore, I wonder if there's much coverage of it at all. If infrastructure is not a sexy like, Julia, what was the last high salience bipartisan bill that was, I guess these COVID bills were passed, but that was in divided government. What was the last unified government high salience bipartisan bill? That is a that is a tricky question. I feel like I know this. Medicare Part D? That unified government high that seems right. And in 2006 or 2005, right? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Wow, you guys are really good I at this. I think it's 2006. Um, I was not aware we were going to do a quiz. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm just getting to the point that it's like this idea that in unified government, when the parties have some incentive to not work with the other party, I'm just having a hard time. Okay, so the, the, the infrastructure scenario makes sense, except I just don't know how that would mm-hmm. work. And if the, 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 that's we need, we don't have a good hypothetical for this. Galen's question is a good one. I don't know. If the presidents haven't tried or the parties, but we need we need this experiment, sort of. Well, I just think about this because it seemed almost like Biden was trying with the refugee cap to say, "Okay, you care a lot about this, Republicans. I'll just stick with what your plan was. But, you know, the backlash from Democrats was so swift and so strong that it didn't seem possible. And so I'm wondering if that's just simply the case now, um, if there's any issues that Biden could just kind of agree with Republicans That's on? That's not a good example because it's a because it's a it's a executive. Right. So what what you're describing is if Biden does refugees, the Republicans will agree to demagogue on the border less would be a bipartisan deal, right? Maybe something like that. Something like that. They have, they have to give something for it to be bipartisan. You just give away something. You just cut the refugee caps down because we want it. It's not a deal. That's like so. Well, I, I guess yeah. I mean not so much like what does bipartisanship look like in Congress more than okay. how does the public respond more broadly? Like how do Republican voters respond when Biden does something that they want that Democrats don't necessarily want? And like, is there a scenario in which that would ever happen? Do Republican voters really know what refugee ca- I mean, is that a give to Republican voters? Refugee? I don't think that that one's a hard one. I'm not sure that's a we'd have to pick an issue that's a little bit more. I think if Biden had kept the refugee caps and the left had not complained, no one would have noticed two weeks later. Yeah. That issue is maybe too low. I want to do this test, but I can't. But we need an issue that's a little bit hotter to get the test. Right. Um, the proof is right here in this conversation almost that things are so sorted that it is really difficult to think of a plausible scenario in which this could happen in a way that like Clinton did it. I think we had a Russia sanctions bill yeah. that passed in 2017 that, you know, right. The Trump complained about with sign like that was bipartisan, yeah. but it's a bit of, but we, for, we, we don't, I think part of it is that we forget issues that are bipartisan. This yeah. is, there is a media problem here. Yeah. No, that's the, I think that's, uh, there's actually a fair amount of bipartisan stuff that still happens, but it's just very, it's very low salience, but I, I see what you're getting at. We're the problem, guys. The minute we focus on something, the whole conversation falls apart. (laughs) Maybe we should just shut up. No, I'm kidding. There's something to that, yeah. Anyway, this was good. So thank you, Julia and Perry. I appreciate it. Thanks, Gabe. Yeah, thank you. And Perry, you aren't leaving us just yet. You'll also be here on Monday. So um, look forward to talking to you then. Until then, my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.
people who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.